The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The hymn Amazing Grace is a staple in choirs around the world, but it also has a long and fascinating history, which takes in the story of slavery, abolition and civil rights, all of which has been documented by James Walvin in his new book delving into the hymn's history. David Musgrove spoke to James to find out more, and to kick off the conversation, he asked who wrote the hymn to begin with. written by the Reverend John Newton, an Anglican vicar in Olney in Buckinghamshire, and he wrote it in 1772, and it was first sung January the 1st, 1773. But the extraordinary thing is that this hymn, written for an English audience by an Englishman, had been written by a man who'd actually been an ex-slave trade captain. And yet today, Amazing Grace is a, a kind of global anthem. In the United States, it's almost like a second national anthem. And what really sparked my curiosity is that simple question, how does a simple English hymn become a global anthem, an anthem to mankind, if you will? Let's talk a little bit more about John Newton. So you've just told us when he wrote the hymn. What's his backstory? What was he doing before he started writing this hymn? John Newton grew up in a seafaring family. His father was a seafarer. He was a seafarer from being a young boy, and he became involved eventually in slave trading. Basically, he was a slave trader out of Liverpool, and with all the kind of violence and inhumanity that that involved. And he became first mate on a slave ship. He then was captain of a slave ship out of Liverpool. And remember, by the mid-18th century, one African in five is crossing the Atlantic in a ship out of Liverpool. So this is the man who wrote Amazing Grace. And the curiosity, the kind of perplexing problem is, how do you explain a man that's steeped in the violence of Atlantic slavery becoming a hymn writer, becoming a vicar of an English church? That's the first curiosity about this particular hymn. Can we just interrogate his backstory just a little bit more about how he actually became involved in the slave trade? You said that Liverpool in the mid-18th century was a very busy slave trade port. And I think in your book, you explain that actually it was so busy, it was hard to find a ship, let alone a captain, to be involved in it. There was so much traffic going on in that nefarious trade. So is that why Newton was able to get involved? It was basically supply and demand of people who wanted to work in that trade. 
Newton becomes a slave trader because it is one of the dominant aspects of maritime trade in and out of Liverpool. It's not the only one. We know that, you know, Liverpool is a booming, booming seaport, but the slave trade comes to sort of dominate certain areas of the economy. Newton had actually traded as a younger man in and out of the Mediterranean, like his father, but then trading to Africa, he gets involved in that by accident, really. I mean, he's a dissolute youth who ends up on Royal Navy ship and then onto a slave ship. They trade him because of his indiscipline. He finds himself in West Africa and he's, in a way, he's kind of enslaved himself, working for slave traders on the coast, escapes from that. And then it's in the middle of an Atlantic storm leaving North America, coming back to Liverpool, where the ship is almost wrecked, that he finds God. He'd always been devout. This is a curiosity about him. His mother was very devout. He was raised as a God-fearing child. He loved his hymns, Isaac Watts' hymns, and yet he was a slave trader. And this is something which I think modern students find very, very hard to come to terms with. How could a man who was uh, steeped in the violence of the slave trade in the Atlantic be a good, devout, Christian. The truth is, of course, people didn't see the kind of contrast at the time. We now look back on slavery as something that is irreligious, unchristian, immoral, wrong. That's not how 18th century people saw it. John Newton was one of tens of thousands, both at sea and on land, who saw nothing incongruous between being a slave trader or involved in slavery in some way and being a devout Christian. We just explore that a little bit more because that is such a an odd statement, isn't it, when we think about it today? And, and there's a line in your book where you say, Newton was just one small element in a society where the buying, selling and owning of Africans went largely unchallenged. Vanishingly few of Newton's white contemporaries thought about it. Our listeners will just be sort of scratching their heads, I'm sure, trying to square that circle about how these people who were, as you said, considered themselves to be devout Christians, could also be involved in what was, you know, in our minds today, an absolutely horrendous, disgusting business, but they clearly didn't have that view. The curiosity is, and in fact, I still scratch my head about this problem. Christianity didn't turn against slavery until really quite late in the 18th century. There are Christian voices against it. There's no doubt about that. But they're a minority. They're not heeded. The great bulk, the great swathes of the Christian world didn't think of slavery as something that is wrong. Well, that was true of other religions as well. I mean, Slavery had gone unquestioned, unchallenged since time out of mind, not just in the Atlantic. Wherever you turn in, in recorded history, slavery is a fact of life and contemporary faith didn't really challenge it, whether it was Islam or whether it was Christianity. And Christians don't see this as something as a problem. You can dip into the Bible, for instance, to find any number of examples of slavery discussed, slavery accepted. And indeed, when the American Civil War comes along, there are clerics throughout the American South dipping into the Bible to find quotes to justify enslavement and slavery. But in this particular case with Newton, one illustration of this, he docks in at Sandy Point in St. Kitts with a cargo of slaves which he sells. And he docks next to a man called Alexander Clooney, who's a captain out of London. And for a number of nights, these two men, who are both quite devout, sit on the deck and talk about theology and, and discuss how do you secure grace? How do you get to heaven? And they're talking about this night after night as good Christian men and really quite learned theologians, whilst the stink of the slave decks is in their nostrils. They see nothing odd about this godless world that they work and live in, and their faith. 
To us, it's bizarre. To them, it was unquestioned, unchallenged, normal. Okay. And you've got this very memorable quote in your book, where, which you've just described, where you say that Newton lived with the stench of slave ships in his nostrils, which I think is quite a, a redolent phrase, isn't it? Yes. The problem with talking about the slave trade and the slave ships is, after a fashion, it becomes very prurient. So the more you look at it, the more disgusting it is. And yet, these are the very issues which define it and define the experience of the millions of Africans who endure it and who survive it. You could smell a slave ship from miles downwind. When the Royal Navy turns against the slave trade, as it does after 1807, and it's chasing slavers, they could tell if it was a slave ship because they could smell it miles off. It was the stink of slavery. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So were you saying that after this storm that he was involved in, he has a kind of a moment of reformation? He sort of realises the error of his ways or is that is that taking it too far? He doesn't really see the errors of his ways until quite late. Uh, what he does do, he realises that he's been leading a sinful life, affairs of the flesh, as he would describe it, a, a dissolute life, an immoral life, contradicting um, theological study that he was deeply involved in. And he eventually turns, he turns slowly. What happens at first is that he finds grace. He thinks that grace is there for anyone who wants it. If you can just confess to your sins, admit your shortcomings, that you can actually hope for salvation, for security, for grace. And that's what the great storm does to him. He's saved by God's goodwill, by God's grace. And he's determined thereafter to become a minister. The problem becoming a cleric is that he hadn't been to university. He hadn't been to Oxford or Cambridge. He's a self-taught man, a deeply learned man, a well-read man, a man steeped in theology, but not a man that would normally go into a clerical position because he has no formal education. So once he has a stroke when he's in Liverpool, can no longer go back to sea, and is determined thereafter to become a cleric. And he pursues that for years until he's finally admitted and becomes a minister in Olney and later in London. And the man has turned. And it's only really quite late in his life, in um, the 1780s, that he becomes known as an abolitionist. And the problem with him being an abolitionist is that he's got a pretty shady past to cover up. He had been a slave captain. He'd actually tortured slaves. He'd put them in the thumbscrews to confess to if they'd been plotting a revolt on board ship. All the things that the abolitionists begin to level against slave trade, the, the vile cruelties, John Newton had been involved in. And he doesn't really want to sort of blemish his own life, his own career, his past, by spelling this out. But he does become a very powerful voice of a man who'd, who knew exactly what he was talking about when he was talking about slave ships. And a man who now, 1780s onwards, wants to see an end to the, the barbarities of the Atlantic slave trade. 
Okay, so let's just clarify the chronology. I think the stroke was 1754, and then he sort of he becomes ordained as a preacher 10 years later, 1764, and he writes Amazing Grace in 1772, and it's performed first on New Year's Day, 1773. Have I got that right? Correct. So he's a preacher. In the late 1760s, he's a preacher, and he starts writing hymns. What's his position as a as a hymn writer? Presumably Amazing Grace isn't the first one he puts to paper. Amazing Grace is just one of many hymns which he and William Cooper, the, the poet, write together or individually. And uh, John Newton is interested in writing a hymn that would illustrate a point that he tries to make in his sermon. He's a tremendous preacher. People come from miles around this small church, have to build an extension so that people can listen to him. People tramp for miles to listen to John Newton at Olney in Buckinghamshire. But what he wants to do, and he's picked this up really from nonconformists, not from Anglicans, he's picked this up from Methodists and from Baptists, that they worship by singing, by song. And he writes hymns in the hope that people will pick up a point he's made in his sermon. And Amazing Grace is one of them. He's given a sermon about grace. And he wants to back that up by people singing about it. And they sing a hymn that he wrote, Amazing Grace, January the 1st, 1773. And it's an underground hymn for a very, very long time. But that hymn is just one of many that Newton writes and which he uses to reinforce a particular sermon that he's given that's associated with a particular hymn that's sung on that day. Okay. So just a couple of things to pick up on there. So he's writing the hymns and he's writing with William Cowper. Are they writing the words and someone else is putting music involved? Where does the sound element come from here? The music comes from any number of directions. People do not sing Amazing Grace for decades to the tune that we know today. Not that we know of, anyway. People sing it. To, it's, in fact... Folklorists collecting versions of this in the early 20th century find people singing it to any number of different tunes. It's easy verse, it's easy to be sung to, and you can sing all kinds of ways to Amazing Grace. We don't know how it was sung, we don't know the music that people sang it to, but we certainly know that it's not the one that we associate with it today. The music that we think of as Amazing Grace is not the music that people sang initially. They sang it to any number of refrains. And in terms of the experience in the English parish church in the 18th century, would hymns have been a, a fixture? Would singing like this have been something that was characteristic, not just in, in Newton's church, but across the land? Not so much in the Anglican church. That comes later. The Anglican church is very resistant to the coming of hymns. The real proponents and singers of hymns are, of course, the nonconformists, the Baptists and Methodists and other sects. They're the ones who sing their faith much more than the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church leaves the singing to the priests, to the ministers. They're the ones who lead the musical contribution, although audiences later join in with the hymnals that the Church of England produce. But the Church of England is not the kind of congregational singing church that the nonconformist churches are. And that's really one of the reasons why amazing grace doesn't really figure in the Anglican church the way it does in the nonconformist church and particularly in the United States of America. Amazing Grace doesn't really take off as a popular hymn in England and Britain but England in particular in the way that it does in the United States and it doesn't take off because the Anglican church has a dead hand on what is sung and what isn't sung. 
Okay, we'll jump onto the longer term story of the hymn in just one second. But just in terms of what Newton was trying to say with the lyrics originally that day in 1772, 73, when it was performed, what was the message he was trying to get across to his audience? The lyrics are that there's hope and faith and salvation for everyone who wants it, for anyone who wants it. If you just come to terms with your past life, with your sins, and beg for forgiveness and lead a, a better life, salvation is yours, grace is yours, God will give you grace. Everyone could have grace if you just come to terms with, with your past and accept it as it was and move on. And it also spells out a, a kind of humane message. If you look at the third verse, through many toils, many strives, etc., People have come. It speaks to the kind of lot of people who've had hardship, as of course so many people had. I mean, it appeals to the lot of ordinary people whose working lives yielded very little and who hoped for a better life to come. The hymn spoke both of a theological level and at a kind of humane level of humanity. It's one of the reasons, both in the 18th century as in the 21st century, it has this quite extraordinary appeal. It's not just a kind of religious message it's a it's a message for mankind a message of hope but it wasn't framed specifically around abolition or slave trade or slavery there wasn't a specific message that he was trying to get across there although it's tempting because he was a slave trader and a, and a slave captain it's tempting to think that this is a hymn that was written about and for slavery or against slavery and on behalf of the slaves. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. He's talking about this as a kind of human phenomenon, as A, as a theological issue, and B, as a human problem. Slaves are, in a way, slaves are noises off stage, except that it has tremendous kind of implications, ramifications for people who are enslaved, which is one of the reasons why African-Americans take to it in a very big way once the, the hymn moves to North America by the end of the 18th century. So you were saying earlier that Newton becomes involved in the abolition movement from the 1780s almost, and he's, he's getting on a bit by then. He's not a young man. Does the hymn Amazing Grace start to gain traction with the abolition movement from that time? I'm thinking in Britain specifically. I don't think it does, actually. I don't think Amazing Grace becomes a hymn for abolition in the way that Amazing Grace becomes a hymn for black life in North America at much the same time. It doesn't. What Newton does is that Newton establishes his name as an abolitionist through other methods. He becomes famous as a preacher and he becomes famous as a writer against the slave trade. He gets up and denounces the slave trade from the sermon and in public meetings. And via his friendship with the Wilberforce, he's known Wilberforce for a long time, he becomes a spokesman for abolition within parliamentary system itself. I mean, he gives evidence to the Committee of the Privy Council in 1787 against the slave trade. And if you look at that moment, here is this old preacher man who's ushered into the room of the Privy Council, led by the Prime Minister himself, by Pitt, and all the other members of the Privy Council stand up in recognition of the John Newton's eminence. Now, this is an extraordinary phenomenon here. An ex-slave trader, a humble preacher, being greeted as a distinguished man by the prime minister and by other ministers, and whose word against the slave trade is then heeded by a politician, and he's fed into the growing parliamentary campaign against the slave trade. But it's not amazing grace that does that. It's John Newton, the preacher man, John Newton, the man whose voice is now directed against the slave trade. 
You mentioned Wilberforce just then in your answer. I'm sure all our listeners know who that is, but you're talking about William Wilberforce. Do you want to just give us a couple of lines on him? Yes, William Wilberforce, the man who was the parliamentary leader of the campaign against the slave trade, the man who so many people think brought the slave trade down. He clearly didn't. I mean, he's just one of many, but he is undoubtedly the parliamentary spokesman that leads the campaign within Parliament in the 1780s and later to end the British slave trade. He's been increasingly marginalised in recent years, in recent writing, that people tend not to like to emphasise too much the role of William Wilberforce because it's it's as if you're putting it down to the work of one man and it's a much more complicated issue than that, particularly, of course, the, the role of the, the agency of the enslaved themselves in bringing it to an end. But nonetheless, Wilberforce is central within Parliament. And remember, the abolition of the slave trade was an act of Parliament. And one of the men that was instrumental in bringing that act of Parliament about was William Wilberforce. And William Wilberforce was a long-time friend of the Reverend John Newton. Right, let's get back to Amazing Grace. So when does it start to become popular and where? Amazing Grace's popularity is most striking in North America. It crosses the Atlantic. By 1800, it's taken root. And it takes root in North America in Baptist and Methodist churches. You know, there's an extraordinary explosion of Christianity in the early republic of the, of the United States. I mean, just extraordinary. Proliferation of churches and a huge number of preachers, travelling preachers, preachers with their own chapels, their churches, and the coming of Christianity amongst the enslaved. That's a, a kind of sensitive issue. Some slave owners try to prevent, others encourage them. But wherever we find slaves turning to Christianity, there they sing. They sing as they sang at work, call and response songs. Someone would sing the first line and the rest would follow. What happens in their churches is the same. Someone would sing the first line and the rest would follow. And that's exactly what happens in African-American religious gatherings. Someone will sing the first line and the rest would follow. One of the hymns that they begin to sing is Amazing Grace. It takes root as well in North America, amongst immigrants on the frontier, Irish, Scots, English, Welsh. They take with them their, not only their own faith, but they're singing their religion. And one of the things they sing is amazing grace. So you have these two parallel lines in the early Republic and then in the United States in the 19th century of amazing grace being sung in African-American churches and in white churches of same denominations, but also amongst folk people, people on the frontiers who don't really belong to urbanised, modernising society, backwoods of America. They sing Amazing Grace, and they sing it to a whole variety of different tunes. Now I was going to ask, at what point do we get the tune that we would recognise today? The tune that we recognise today had been floating around and attached to various songs and hymns. But it only really comes together with the words Amazing Grace in the 1830s. And that's part of this quite extraordinary explosion of American hymnals. There's hymn teaching by music masters up and down the United States. I mean, it's an extraordinary culture of people singing and people learning to sing. And people learning to sing increasingly, of course, an increasingly literate society. On the printed word, cheap Bibles free Bibles, published in their millions, and there you find Amazing Grace, and there you find people singing it to the tune that we're familiar with today. But even that 
doesn't really establish itself as a kind of the norm until really quite late in the 19th century. People are still singing Amazing Grace to a variety of tunes, but the modern tune, the tune that we think of today as Amazing Grace, and the words are put together in the 1830s. Thereafter, we have the kind of the prototype, the model that actually flourishes in the late 19th century and then explodes in the 20th century. And what was it, do you think, about either the lyrics or the tune that becomes associated with it that particularly struck a chord for these communities in America that you've described? I think it's, you know, you listen to it carefully. I think the words speak to a hope. They speak to the prospects of salvation, don't they? They they speak to the human condition. They're words that actually address anybody. Anybody can have a salvation. Anyone can have grace. Anyone can secure grace. People who've gone through hardship, that third verse in particular, that's a verse that people who've endured hard lives recognise as speaking for themselves. And amongst large numbers of people, millions of people increasingly in North America, and particularly amongst the enslaved and those who are freed from slavery, here is a hymn that the words speak to their condition. And it's true of working people all over, but I mean, it's true particularly for the enslaved. Now, the music, of course, what is it about the music? Well, the music has a kind of, the modern music has a kind of haunting effect, doesn't it? It's something that you can't get out of your mind. It's a very simple tune. Easily remembered, easily sung, easily hummed, sung regularly, easily followed. It's not a complex tune. And indeed, when in the 20th century, Amazing Grace takes off in the last three decades of the 20th century, takes off as a commercial phenomenon, one of its great areas is the simple music of Amazing Grace, played by pipers. The popularity of Amazing Grace played by pipers has got nothing to do with the words, because there are no words. But any number of people remember Amazing Grace by the simple tune. In fact, if you played the tune of Amazing Grace, people would know what it is without anyone spelling out the words, wouldn't they? You'd recognise it straight away. It's a tune that everyone recognises. And that extraordinary... It's not the only one like that. In, in the British case, I suppose there are hymns... Well, I suppose Abide With Me would be another one, or the National Anthem. There are certain pieces of music that are a combination of words and music that... Are, have a kind of indefinable mix. It's a kind of chemical mix that they have, which is really quite unique. But in the case of Amazing Grace, the two can stand together. Play the tune alone, people know what it is. Sing that first line, first few words, and people know precisely what it is. And they come together, words and tune, to create this quite unique uh, phenomenon, a hymn that is a global anthem. Did Amazing Grace have a particular role to play in the civil rights movement? Was it emblematic in that period? That extraordinary aspect of American history from the 1950s onwards, when the American South began to rise up to demand an end to the kind of discrimination and to demand the admission of African Americans to the full rights of all American citizens. That campaign that began by all kinds of small moments, like, you know, the bus boycott, and was led increasingly by and personified by Martin Luther King. Those marchers marched throughout the South, and as they marched, they sang, and they sang the songs that had been 
at the heart of African-American churches uh, since time out of mind. And one of the songs they sing is Amazing Grace. If you really want a, an insight into the potency of that hymn in African-American life and American faith, one small incident. At the end of a long day, Martin Luther King, exhausted, very dangerous, exhausting days on the road, Mahalia Jackson would ring him and down the phone she would sing Amazing Grace to him, part of his regime of relaxing in the evening after a terrifying and exhausting day. Now, it's a pretty extraordinary story, that in itself. Here is the great leader of African-American political protest at the end of a day of protest being sung to by one of the great singers of American, African-American gospel, Mahalia Jackson. And what is, what she's singing to him? Amazing grace. So the hymn had a particular resonance in the civil rights period, and it's still got a lot of resonance today, hasn't it? Because you talk about an incident where President Obama started singing it in a sort of an apparently impromptu moment. Tell us a bit about that. In 2015, in the summer of 2015, a racist lunatic shot dead nine people at a church in Charleston, South Carolina, killing the preacher, the Reverend Pinckney, and eight of his parishioners who were having a Bible reading in their church. And at the funeral that was held a little later at the College of Charleston's basketball stadium, President Obama came down to Charleston to do the funeral oration. And anyone can see this on YouTube. It's an electrifying political moment. Obama is giving his speech to 5,000 people in the congregation and thousands more outside in the sweltering heat of a Charleston summer. And he sets aside suddenly and starts to sing Amazing Grace. No one, with all the goodwill in the world, whatever qualities he's got, no one could claim that President Obama has a good singing voice. But it's an electrifying moment. And the, if you look at the clip, it's available for anyone. Look at the clip. The clerics behind him rise quickly. They were taken by surprise, and they start to join in the president. So too did the musicians there. They were picking up their instruments and stuff. And so too did the 5,000 people in the audience. They all stood up and started singing Amazing Grace. And what's interesting is that Amazing Grace wasn't printed on the order of service, but those thousands of people knew it, and they knew it word for word. So it's a largely African-American congregation. They knew it. Obama knew that they knew it. It was a gamble. It looks impromptu, but actually Obama discussed the matter with his wife and with his advisors before flying down to the funeral. And they said, no, it's not, not such a good idea, President. You know, you're, you're a good singer, etc., etc." And he said, listen, if I have the congregation on my side, it'll be fine. Well, how could the first African-American president singing about murdered black people and in front of an African-American congregation, how could he not have them on his side? And it was one of the great electrifying moments of his presidency. And it's also a quite extraordinary insight into the role of that hymn in American life. And it was that moment that persuaded me to write this book. That was James Walvin, author of Amazing Grace, a cultural history of the beloved hymn. You can find out more about the history of slavery and abolition on the History Extra website. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.